Our scripture lesson tonight um, comes from the songbook of the church, Psalm 127. Let's share God's good word together. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives sleep to his beloved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Ain't you tired? It's a good question, isn't it? When I talk to folks around Edmond, we are some tired folks. One week left to school. We are some tired folks. Now, if you've seen the movie The Help, you know Hilly is a judgmental, racist, conniving, busybody, full of herself, religion, and anger. All together, wrapped up in one. Ain't you tired, Miss Hilly? Ain't you tired? Ain't we? If you've ever tried resisting God's clear command to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us, it can take up your whole day, all your energy, your life. And if you have ever gone to the great effort to explain yourself over and over again to anyone who will listen about how you are right, about this issue, or about such and such, or concerning so and so, then you have a sense of the bone-tired, aching effect and feeling that comes from seething for far too long. If you have spent time in your mind going over and over about how what you are doing is not really as bad as what that other person has done to you, then you know how hard and really time-consuming anger can be. And how worthless it is. If we're not careful, we, like Hilly, can lose our life. We really can. Trying to hold on to the illusion of a perfect life where we are in control and we determine the outcomes will actually drain life out of us. Mentally, spiritually, even physically. If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. And I came across a study a few months back that really struck me. Because it's the first time in our country's history that this is true. It's a study from the National Academy of Sciences which found that middle-aged white Americans, that would be me, have been getting sicker and dying in greater numbers, even as the rest of the world is living longer and healthier. And the first time in our country, folks in middle age and white America are dying at a greater rate. The authors of that study attributed the trend to what we call despair deaths. Despair deaths are rising for middle-class America. These are things like suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related liver disease. Between 1999 and 2014, mortality rates in the U.S. rose for white Americans from ages 22 to 56 for the first time in our country. Before that, death rates had been falling by nearly 2% each year since 1968, when Chantel was born. I'm 67, she's 68. Um, but, but since 1999, when Noah was born, mortality rates in the U.S. started to rise. And, and people couldn't figure it out. They're like, what's going on? We know uh, we have better health care, we have better medicine, we have less disease. Why are these folks starting to die at a higher rate? 
And, and if you take out those factors, the, the factors we've been talking about are about 40% of the gap, but then the rest was attributable to leading causes of death, things like heart disease, diabetes, and respiratory disease, all stress-related. And that means that not only are middle-aged white people drinking more, using more opi- opiates, and killing themselves at higher rates, more of them are getting sick with diseases that usually only killed older people. And when they do get sick, they don't get better. They die. Now, what's going on? Specifically, it was found in seven states. West Virginia, Mississippi, Tennessee, Kentucky, Alabama, Arkansas. Anybody guess the other one? Oklahoma. So the study warned of declining levels of social connectedness, a weakened communal institutions, and the splintering of society along class and geographic and cultural lines. Um, When um, Time Magazine uh, asked what people needed to give up uh, for Lent, Oklahoma said fear. It's in our culture. People are stressed out. We now live in a place and a time where actually people really do feel alone and afraid. And it's killing us. And God says there's a better way. You don't have to live this way. There's a better way, a better truth, a better life. His name is Jesus. And he has good news for us. And the Bible has good news for us tonight. We don't have to live like this. So we go all the way back to the songbook of the people of faith. And from Psalm 120 through 126, you have what's known as songs of ascent. Um, This 127th Psalm that we read tonight is the eighth Psalm of 15 in a row. And and they're called the ascents. They probably sang them on their way uh, to Jerusalem. And so these, these Psalms of ascent... Uh, would express our trust in God. And it wasn't some, you, you know, pie in the sky, everything's easy. Uh, God is going to be all right. But rather, it was expressing trust in God's help in a hostile environment. That's your blank there. It, it was in times were tough and hard, and they were singing praises to God as they traveled that dangerous Jericho road from Jericho to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms of God's goodness and their dependence upon him. So as we go back to Psalm 127, uh, it, it says this. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Is there anything wrong with houses? No, houses are good. That's fine. But unless the Lord is in the middle of it, it's useless. And then again, unless the Lord guards the city, the guard keeps watch in vain. Our city's good? Our watchmen good? Yes, of course. But unless the Lord is in it, It's for no reason. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For God gives sleep to his beloved. Now, what does this anxious toil look like? One of the things that I try to talk to the staff about is that when we leave here at 9 o'clock at night or 10 o'clock at night, I try to have a 12-hour rule to where they're not back here before whenever they left. Because something happens when we break that rule, and that is we get cranky. And I found one thing to be true. Church people don't like it when their staff is cranky. Hey, pastor, how you doing? I'm tired and worn out. How are you? Nobody likes that. So we try to be rested and, and healthy and, and whole and, and model some sanity for our folks. But what I find is that that really goes against the culture. What is this anxious toil that our ancestors write about, sing about, live into, that that's not how it is to be with us. How does it feel to have anxious toil? Well, it's anxious that it can all fall apart 
or be taken away at any moment. Any of you all feel like that? Maybe you've been working 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and you're still scared that if you don't do things just right, it may all be gone by the weekend. That somehow that it's never enough, and it will never be enough. That's anxious toil. It feels overwhelming. And what's odd is you can feel accomplished, yet still lacking at the same time. Like you're dying, not flourishing. Stressful, like you want to escape. Yes, it works, it's good, but I can't sustain it. Driven, pushed, a life of have-tos and should-haves, and I'm so sorry I'm late, always late. A disappointment to others, worse, a disappointment to myself. Now, I don't think God is disappointed, but I can't hear him anymore in the rush of carpool and deadlines and school and the necessary appearances for the company or the colleagues or the cash. That's anxious toil. Not because you're called to it, but you don't know how to live otherwise. You just have to, living in the world of have-tos. And debt, of course, is at the door. Your life is no longer your own. That you're owned. You need help. But we're afraid to ask. This is anxious toil. Get up early. Go to bed late. Checking emails when your phone dings in the middle of the night. Because it can all be vapor next week. And we've got plenty of friends that will tell you their tale of woes. This is anxious toil. And God says you don't have to live like that. I'm watching. I'm ready. I care for you. I care for all my children all around the world. And what we find then, friends, is this. That excessive work is accompanied by needless anxiety. Say that with me. Excessive work is accompanied by needless anxiety. Is work good? Yes. In the garden, Adam and Eve, he sends Adam to go till it, work it. That's good. But notice too, Adam isn't doing much work after dark. There's no electricity, right? You get up, you work, you go to bed. Sun up, sundown, you're done. This electricity business is tricky, isn't it? Cell phones, lights, computers. When is enough enough? When is your work done? It's a good question. And so it's in the midst of this turmoil, in, in the midst of this anxious toil, that, that God begins to give us a different vision about what's important in life and even to bring happiness in the midst of the turmoil. So in Psalm 127, as you continue the song, it says this, Sons are indeed a heritage from the Lord, the fruit, the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the sons of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Now, I would remind you of something you probably don't need reminding of, but they did not have in vitro at this time. When your wife got pregnant, it was an act of God. That's how they saw that. Right? No one had special things that you did here or there to get pregnant, stay pregnant, or have the baby. No, if you were blessed to have a child, it was from the Lord. That's how they understood that. But notice that you can be happy with your family, with what God has given you, whatever that is, even though you still have enemies at the gate. It's not that he doesn't have enemies. It's not that everything's perfect. No, he's happy with what the Lord is giving him, that the Lord is protecting. And they would sing the song on the road on their pilgrimage to Jerusalem. You see, there's a, there's a problem, isn't there? 
And the problem is our human condition. And the problem has been around for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. As Andy alluded to earlier, this is Pentecost. We, we celebrate with flames and joy that the Spirit is among us. And for me, I think about Acts 2 and the Pentecost experience as the opposite of Genesis 11. Genesis 11 goes like this. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and they settled there. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city, a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now where's the problem? You see, they needed to make a name for themselves because they were afraid. They're afraid that if they didn't build a bigger building, a more showy building, the actual structure is called a ziggurat. Uh, they're kind of a good for nothing, just a big old tower to the sky. But we, people would build them and say, don't mess with us. See how powerful we are. See how big we are. But they needed to make a name for themselves. That's what they thought. I don't think it's all that different today. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, I need to live in that neighborhood or I need that size house or I need to go to that school or I need to drive that kind of car because I need to make a name for myself. I need to be a big deal. Because somehow you think that maybe you feel a little less vulnerable that way. And so the Lord comes down to see what these silly people were doing. The city and this tower which mortals had built. And you know what God does? He's like, you don't need to do that. And he scatters them all over the world with different languages. Because God wants us to know that God wants us to be dependent upon him. Not on our buildings, not in facilities, not in houses, not in a name for ourselves, but in God. And what we find from the story is this, that building and guarding, these things that the Psalms talk about, become destructive. That's your blank there. They become destructive when they become means of expressing self-sufficiency rather than dependence upon God. Is your home a great blessing of God? Absolutely. But if you start protecting your home over serving God, then that's a problem. And if you live in Oklahoma, you know very well this time of year that your home can disappear in a matter of moments. Just any day in May. Just here and then gone, regardless of where you happen to live um, in our state. That's just the way it is. We need God more than we need a certain kind of home or a certain place. And so that's the problem. We all feel like that. We want to self-protect and build things around us. But the truth and the corrective come from Jesus and his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. It says this, therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus speaking, do not what? Worry, don't worry. Really, you don't have to worry about your life. What you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food. Isn't it? Yes, the answer is yes. It is. I know it's about 6 o'clock, but yes, you know, yes. And the body more than clothing, yes. Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And he says, friends, aren't you more valuable than the little sparrows, the little birds that hop around the backyard? Yes, of course you are. So, and can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your span of life? What's the answer to that? No. No, so don't, so don't do that. He says, therefore, do not worry. Don't worry. And, and you don't have to say, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles. Now, I would remind you that Gentiles are simply people who weren't Jewish. And, and so, if we were to take it today, we say, okay, well, look, other people in the world are going to worry about their cars and their homes and their schools and all this. That's just the way the world is. But Jesus says, not so with you. 
Because you know better. You're free of that now. The Spirit lives in you. You can trust me with your life. You're free to live anywhere in the whole world. To go out and live in joy and peace and know that I am watching and I will care for you. You don't have to live like the Gentiles anymore who strive for all these things. Strive. You hear the the pain in that word, striving for these things. Because God knows you need them, he says, Jesus says. God knows this. He says, so if you're going to strive for something, strive first for the things of God, for the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. So if if you are are doing the things that you know God wants you to do, all these other things are going to come into play. He says, so do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's going to have enough trouble for itself, right? So don't worry about tomorrow. Just today's trouble is going to be enough for today. This is Jesus' teaching about worry. You don't have to build the big towers like the people did back in Genesis. Um, that's not what God wants anyway. It's not good for them. doesn't help you. doesn't help others. And so then Jesus really turns and he says, God ultimately provides what humans need without their excessive striving. Now, the more you travel internationally, the more you see this to be true. I was struck when I traveled to Nigeria years ago about how happy the people were there with nothing. I was struck as we built casitas uh, in Rio Bravo, Mexico. As we would uh, toil and spin and build these homes, uh, the kids would play. and Had almost next to nothing. They were happy. We, we could have three days worth of fun with a little bag of balloons. Fun, fun, fun. No worries at all. With a soccer ball and some balloons. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. God knows your address, what you need, and how to take care of you. And then Jesus says this later on in the Sermon on the Mount. He he says, in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. We know this as the golden rule. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to what, friends? Destruction. Right? The whole world knows how to do this anxious toil that tears your life apart. Now, that's not new. That's not news. That's just the way of the world. And, and so Jesus says, don't do that. There are many who take it. He says, but, but listen up, friends. The gate is narrow and the road is difficult. It's hard that leads to life. And there are few who find it. It's not always easy to trust in God, to trust God with your future, to do what you feel he's called to do when you can't see the results. But that's where life is. But friends, that's a narrow road. It's not the way of the wider world. And so we always have this temptation to take matters into our own hands, to be people of control. And again, the songbook of the church reminds us, no, 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 be still. Be still and know that I am God, God says. I am exalted among the nations. I am exalted in the earth. Be still. Stop striving. Cease striving. That's what that means. And man, is that countercultural, even in the church. Now, you may have noticed that compared to other churches in the area, we have very few programs. Because if you're not careful, the church will make your life worse. Trying to get you to do things that you don't have time to do already. That you're already overscheduled. You're already difficult to live with because you're already stressed out. And the last thing we want to do is guilt you into doing one more thing that you don't have time to do. Rather, we want to lift this up to you and say, what does God have for me, have for us, have as a church? What are we really called to do? What one thing or two things 
is God asking of us between now and Christmas? Really, ask yourself the question. What would God have me do between now and the end of the year? What one thing that could change the world? What one thing could change my family? What one thing might we need to give up to start to live a life of peace and not offense? You, you ever noticed um, how sometimes if you're driving, that if you're late for a meeting, everybody but you is a bad driver. But if you're on vacation, everybody seems to be a little better at it. Let's see how this works. We, we need to no longer be the overscheduled, offended, angry Christians that the world has come to know. We can back up and let God handle our schedules. I had a friend of mine ask me this week. Uh, she said, you know, Pastor Mark, could you... Could you tell us how to talk to our kids about the sermon? You know, what, what questions could we ask our kids? What should we talk to them about? And so if, if your children uh, or you have little ones um, that you're in a relationship with, in, in this sermon, if you're brave, you might ask them this question. You might say, honey, when is it in our life um, that we feel rushed? Or when do we feel stressed is there anything that we do as a family that that makes you feel anxious because we're stressed is there anything that you would like for us to stop doing as a family now of course when they say church you can say no but the other stuff you know you think about but you think about it so, so oftentimes we we're concerned that that when our child thinks that they want to do five things because they have five friends each in different things that that somehow if we don't allow them to do all five things that you know they're not going to be the next tiger woods or kevin durant or you know football player whatever you want well friends we got to give that up we got to let our kids have time to play time to rest time to have a life and we can have a life with them I'm told that uh, Sunday afternoon about 3 is the new Monday morning at 7. And maybe that's true for some of you all. That It used to be that Sunday was the day of rest, but not anymore. Sundays by, by 3, you're on the email and you're checking things out. You've got to have your presentation ready for the next thing. You're already working even on Sunday afternoon. And I don't say that to guilt you. I say that you might want some freedom around that. Just to let that go and, and know that God has you. That you're not going to starve to death if you don't work yourself to death. We can cease striving. We have to actively choose a way to live because otherwise we'll simply get swept along, hurried, stressed, status-driven, easily angered, and opting for busyness without even knowing why. Brent Hansen, in his book, Unoffendable, writes it this way. He says, living the usual way, we're prone to offense simply because people can't help but stand in the way of what we're straining to get. He writes this, and I want you to hear it word for word. He says, you know what else requires a lot of energy and isn't very restful? Quitting jobs, ending relationships, moving. Anger leads to dissolution one way or the other. Sadly, there are many side effects to anger, and one of them includes carefully putting our dishes once again into moving boxes. Taking offense is so often a lot of work. It can wear you out, he writes. But for some, it really becomes a lifestyle. We run into this in our small church community. People come to our group and they're tremendously excited about it. They love it. They love us. It's great. And they want to share. So they tell us about their past church and how messed up it was because of whatever. And then the church before that and this other group that they had to leave because people were doing such and such. And Brant Hansen writes, gee, think they'll soon find fault with us too? 
Of course. It's a way of life. We get offended. We get disillusioned. We leave over and over and over. Watch for that pattern in your lives. The desert fathers used to say it this way. They would say, friends, stay put. Stay put. Because wherever you go, your demons will follow. I can't tell you how many people I have met uh, that thought, man, if I just had that job or that house or moved to that city, things would be great. And we wish them well and we send them off and then they're back in three years. Happens all the time. Because people have convinced themselves that somehow the issue is out there when really it's right here. You see, it's tiring to have to work through difficulties with people, but for what it's worth, I've learned that it's way easier than starting over and over and over. You can work it out. This forgiveness thing is a real need in the world. And if the church can't model forgiveness and reconciliation and love and getting along in unity, then what chance does the world have? We are to be the very conduit of heaven to the earth. And so it's so important, friends, that in your church family, in your worshiping community, in your small groups, in a Sunday school class, in the people that you run with in the community, that you are modeling love, forgiveness, and grace. Because this is our practice for heaven. And friends, once we realize that God has us and we have nothing to prove, when we really believe that, we won't be quick to anger. Because we won't be afraid. We won't have to make a name for ourselves anymore. You see, anger and rest are always at odds. You can't have both at once. You can't. I'm not an angry sleeper. Are you? I've never met an angry sleeper. That's why we love watching the kids when they fall asleep. We're like, oh, aren't they cute? When they're asleep. Right? They're cute. Right? Sitting there, all snuggled up. But anger and rest, they're at odds. You can't have them both, friends. He's exactly right about that. And so imagine this. Imagine if you gathered people from every nation under heaven. I mean, Arabs and Jews uh, and people from all parts of the world, and you, you brought them all together and you stuffed them in a tiny room. How do you think that would go? Would that go well or badly these days? Well, 50 days after Easter, that's exactly what happened. And in the book of Acts chapter 2, Rather than them going and trying to make a name for themselves and God scattering them, people who had all different languages came together to wait and listen for the Holy Spirit that Jesus had promised. And the Bible recounts it this way uh, in the book of Acts. When the day of Pentecost had come, 50 days after Easter, they were all together in one place, all smushed together, all 120 of them. And, And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. They could actually talk to each other. It was it was like seeing watching CNN uh, at the United Nations without the headsets. Somebody speak in French, everybody goes, wee oui, wee. Oui. You know? The German guy would say hello, and they'd all be like, Guten talk. I mean, it was amazing, right? Just that's what the Spirit brings people together. Gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation, every nation under heaven, living in Jerusalem, and at the sound of the crowd gathered and bewildered, because each one heard them speak in the native language of each. They understood each other perfectly. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our native language? It was blowing their mind. And look what Peter comes and says as a response. 
He says, standing with the eleven, the, the other disciples, raised his voice and he addresses them, men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. This Jesus God raised up and of that all of us are witnesses. Right? These are eyewitness accounts. This isn't hearsay. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, Jesus has poured out this that you both see and hear today. And then he says this. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him, meaning Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, the one they had been waiting for all along. This Jesus whom you crucified. That's a dangerous sermon, by the way. And that's what he says. And then they wanted to know what to do about this. And he says, repent, which means to turn around, turn your life towards God. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit him to come and live in you that you too might be unoffendable for the promise is for you for your children and for all who are far away everyone whom the lord our god calls them who's it for everyone no no really who's it for who does that include are you sure everyone it's really important that we understand this friends this is what our church is named after for the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far away. Say it with me. Everyone. What about those people whose kids are really bad behaved at children's time? Them too? What about for those people whose marriages are kind of messed up at the moment? What about for those people who have never been married? What about people who have been married a lot? What's it say? Everyone. Everyone. This is good news, friends. Everyone whom the Lord God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them. And he said, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 persons were added. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the bringing of bread and the prayers. I hope you know that part. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home. They ate food with glad and generous hearts. These were happy people, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. It was a process that kept going and kept going and kept going and more and more people that everyone would come to know the Lord. This is the way it worked. And in the next 325 years, from that day to the day Constantinople became, Constantine became a convert to Christianity, people grew and grew and grew until many sociologists now believe that more than half the population of the Holy Roman Empire at that time were Christians in that 300 years. From that day, from Acts 2 to 325. Amazing. So let me ask you these questions. What if, just dream with me for a second, what if Christians, you and I, this church, were known as the people you could not offend? Woo! How about that? What do you think? You want to try it? I know it's kind of risky. What if we were the people you could not offend? And, and here's, you know how you do it? This is how you do it. Say it with me. It's not about me. Ready? It's not about me. Because if we're going to be about God's business, then that includes who? Everyone. Which means we're not going to be offended. And I'm not going to be threatened or scandalized by someone else's immoral behavior. Doesn't mean I have to do it. Doesn't mean I have to condone it or accept it or get along with it. Or just means... I'm not going to be scandalized or threatened by it. God's going to take care of me. God can take care of them. Make sense? And then this next part. It is a choice. 
whether you're going to be offended or not. It just is. Say it with me. It is a choice. It is. You can let stuff go or you can choose to be offended. The misery is yours to choose or to let go. You have free will. You do. You can choose it. God's not going to make you be kind. He's not going to make you be loving or forgiving. You have a free will about it. So here's your choice. You can be perpetually shocked and offended. But isn't it exhausting? I mean, ain't you tired of that? I mean, I might not ever want to read Twitter again. Right? It's exhausting. It's exhausting. So, the people filled with the Holy Spirit were not offended. Right? When you read the book of Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit comes and they didn't say, well, I declare fire and tongues and people who aren't of my tribe, I'm out of here. I'm offended. No. Exactly the opposite happened. I don't understand what's going on. I don't know how I understand you, but apparently it's a God thing. So we're coming together, unified for the transformation of the world. So they, if they weren't offended, what were they? They were, say with me, happy. It's okay to be happy. It's all right. Even if other people hate you for it, it's still okay. You can be happy. How are you doing? I'm having a great day. I mean, aren't you almost afraid to say that these days? How are you doing? I'm doing awesome. And you're like, oh, I hope they don't hurt me. It's okay. You're allowed to be happy. It's a good and wonderful thing. 